The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. So, we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter together. Um, we've talked about Peter's purpose in writing this letter. And I, I want to keep reminding of us of this purpose as we go through this um, so that we can make sure that we keep everything that we read in context. It's important that we, as we study this book together, that we keep everything in context so we don't deviate off of the path where we should be. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter gives us his purpose. He says, I've written you uh, to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God so stand firm in it. If you remember the first week, we talked about the fact that uh, Christians at this point were facing persecution, and that persecution was about to really ramp up, and Peter's preparing the hearts of these people uh, for the persecution that is inevitably uh, coming. And he says, I want to encourage you, and I want to testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. So he's telling us, he's telling the readers at this point to stand firm in the true gospel, that that is what's going to help them endure. He's preparing the hearts of these early Christians for the persecution that was on the horizon. He wanted to encourage them by reminding them of the gospel and challenging them to stand firm. In it. So knowing that context, as we've been reading, uh, week one, we talked about uh, a living hope. Peter wanted Christians to remember the source of their salvation, that salvation is from God alone. And that he wanted them to remember the product of their salvation, that the result of salvation is new life and new hope, the sufficiency of their salvation, that Jesus' death and resurrection was and is enough to save them and us, and the reward of their salvation, which is eternal intimacy with God, and finally the promise of their salvation, which is that that salvation is eternally secure. Uh, and then week two, last week we talked about real faith, that salvation is built on real genuine faith. There is no salvation without real faith. And we said that real faith is joyful in suffering, it's commended by God, it yields sanctification from God, and it understands salvation's greatness. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about is our appropriate response to these truths, all right? Um, I can tend to be a little bit awkward in a conversation. If you come up to me and talk to me, sometimes I don't have the appropriate response to what you're saying. I'm trying to process in my head, what am I going to respond with? And sometimes it doesn't always come out the right way. Um, like when a waiter comes up and says, hey, enjoy your meal. And you say, you too. <laughs> you're like, oh no, that's not right. Or when you ask someone how they're doing and they respond, good, how about you? And you respond, oh, I'm good, how about you? <laughs> oh man, no, that's not right. Or when someone says that they're about to head to a funeral or a hospital visit or something like that, and you say, all right, well, y'all have fun. <laughs> You're like, oh man, I'm an idiot. Or when someone tells you they love you and you respond, thanks, bud. That's never appropriate, right? <laughs> There are appropriate responses to certain situations in life, right? That certain situations require or command a certain appropriate response. Uh, like when your wife says, hey, it's nine o'clock at night, would you like to go get me some ice cream? The appropriate response I have learned is always, absolutely I do. Yeah. 
There are appropriate responses. So Peter tells us in our text that there's an appropriate response to the gospel and to real faith. And so let's read together, starting in verse 13. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all glory All its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. All right. So we're going to break that down and we're going to look at a few things that Peter tells us is our appropriate response to the gospel. So first he says, get your mind ready. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, therefore, so because of the gospel and your real faith in it, respond first by getting your mind right. Um, When I was in high school, I was uh, at Camp School. We were doing a um, a kids' camp, and I was helping with rec. uh, And actually, me and Danny Whipple were there helping with camp, and he knows where the story's going. Uh, and so we're running around. I, uh, I don't even remember what I did to him, but I made him mad somehow. And so we're playing, goofing off, and he starts chasing me. Well, and at this point, I was like this skinny, like super, super skinny, and like a little frail gum, Gumby that ran around, you know? And uh, Danny's always been a big guy. And so I'm running from him, and I was... I guess I felt like I got far enough away or I was just done running. I stopped and like two seconds later, I was like, wham, he just like plowed completely, just mo- out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. I just kind of stopped. I didn't even turn to run yet. And just boom, I was on the ground. Broke my collarbone. Yeah. I hope you feel like a jerk. <laughs> Did you hear those O's? That's for you, yeah. Uh, no, he totally didn't mean to. It was my fault for stopping so fast. But uh, out of nowhere, totally unexpected, just mowed over me. I was in, I broke my collarbone. I was out of it. Uh, it's like that sometimes for us as believers, right? We're not ready for the ups and downs that life throws at us. It's like all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, something happens and we're not prepared for it, right? All of a sudden, we find ourselves face down on the ground. There's a current state of things in the world. There's just like low hum of this uncertainty that's kind of steaming around us. And I'm, I'm sure that you can feel it, right? You can feel that there's this weird, like what's gonna happen? We don't understand what's going on. There's this virus thing. There's, 
all the political stuff that's going on. There's uh, this, all this racial stuff, this tension that's going on in, in our country. It's just this constant, like weird, uncertain times. And, and for a lot of Christians, it seems like we're not ready for it. It seems like a lot of Christians are reacting out of fear. Uh, it's like we're coming to this realization that we have no control, right? We have no control over the government. We have no control over this moral shift that's happening in our country. There's no control over COVID or a virus, and, and we're losing grip. And if I think we're honest, it, it terrifies us a little bit. And we react because we're not ready. With all this uncertainty that's happening, a lot of Christians have not really stood the test we're, we're responding, we're reacting, we're kind of losing our minds a little bit. And it's because we start forgetting who our enemy is. We, we start forgetting that our ultimate problem is sin. We start forgetting who our savior is and we start forgetting what our purpose is. And all of this uncertainty and all this stuff that's going on in the world around us has really gotten a lot of Christians knocked off. We weren't prepared for all of this chaos. And it's because our minds weren't ready for all the stuff that's going on. Yes, these are uncertain times for believers. Absolutely. But they're not uncertain times for the God that we proclaim to put our hope in. We serve a God who has, well, he's not surprised by anything that's going on. And it's important that we get our mind focused on that reality. Right, that we don't put ourselves in a position to where we are fearful of all the stuff that's going on and we get knocked off and we start forgetting all of these important truths because God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne and we should not be as Christians reactionary to the circumstances of life. We should be able to remain steady and calm in the midst of trials because God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. And the language Peter uses here for getting our minds ready is the same as a soldier readying himself for battle. It's this idea of getting your mind ready in a fighting stance. Getting our minds ready means intentionally preparing ourselves for whatever is to come. It means constantly reminding yourself of the grace of God and who God is and what he has done. That's what Peter means when he says to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means we're calm and collected in spirit. Sober-minded people are not reactionary. When the junk hits the fan, sober-minded people aren't reactionary. They don't freak out. They respond to life's ups and downs with peace and joy. A Christian is sober-minded because they set their hope completely on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that our hope should be in eternity, and if that's true, we're not going to be so reactionary to life's ups and downs. If we lose our job, we're calm and collected in spirit because our hope is in eternity. If we get a scary medical diagnosis, we're calm and collected in spirit because our hope is in eternity. If there's a global pandemic with immense amounts of uncertainty tied to it, we're calm and collected in spirit because our hope is in eternity. What we see online from Christians and, and from church people is not calm and collected. We're freaking out, people. And God's still at the, at the steering wheel saying, what is wrong with you people? What, why are you freaking out? I'm in control. And it's not that we have to go through life unconcerned about all circumstances. It's just that we understand how temporary all of this really is. And we understand how powerful and sovereign God really is. This life is short. 
It's not worth all of the energy and stress and anxiety, especially when we know that God is in control and sovereign over all things. He's not surprised by any of it. He knows and he has it under control. And that's where our hope is. That is where our hope is. God has been working out his plan of salvation since the garden. Do you realize that? Adam and Eve fall, God starts working on this plan for salvation for his people and he works on it throughout history. He sends Jesus down a cross, making this way for us to be redeemed and saved from our sins and he's continuing to work that out so that one day he comes and brings restoration to all things. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we proclaim to put our hope in. And if our hope is in that, then all of this petty stuff that's happening around us becomes so meaninglessness, meaningless and small and trivial that in comparison, it, it, it should not even take our focus away. If we really believe that, if our hope is set in that, it gives us peace. And Jesus talked about this in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. In light of your salvation, don't be afraid. Get your mind ready. Focus on Christ and the eternal grace that is saving you. The next thing he teaches us is our response should be walking in holiness. Look at verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So Peter is making an appeal based on our new identity. He says, As obedient children. If you've ever had kids, you know this plea that your kids make to you, right? They'll come up to you and say, can I have whatever it is? And you say, no, you can't have it. And they'll say, well, Billy's parents let him have it, right? And as a parent, what is your response? I'm not Billy's parents, right? Go talk, to Billy can do whatever he wants. He's not my kid. I don't care what Billy does. It's not my problem. You're my problem and you're, this is the rule for you, Right? It's because of their identity, because they're ours, that we have higher expectations for them. And Peter's saying, because of who you are in Christ, don't go back to the desires of your former ignorance. Before you were enlightened by the Holy Spirit, you lived one way, you thought one way, but you're not who you once were. God has changed your identity. He has made you into a new creation. Romans 8:15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Because you have a new identity, live like it. That's what Peter's saying. Because you have a new identity, because you're a child of the king, live like it. Be holy, be set apart because God is holy and he is set apart. And we've got an entire generation of self-proclaimed Christians that just don't get this. They think that God is some kind of sky genie that's there to help them when times get tough and bring them to heaven when they die. That's not how this whole thing works. God isn't just there for your beck and call when you want something. He's not just there to bring you to heaven when you die. God is the king of the universe and you are a child of his and he is holy, so you should be holy. 
If you surrendered in faith, if you really surrendered in faith and you've been saved, you're not who you once were. You have a new identity. You're a child of the king. And that means we don't live like everyone else. It means that we're not running around fornicating and committing adultery like the rest of the culture. That means that we're not choosing sports and fishing or whatever other idolatrous act over the assembly of believers. That means that we're not serving ourselves but living for others first. Because we're children of God, we live like children of God, holy and set apart. There should be a difference. Paul writes about this as well in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, because of the gospel, he says, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because we have the promises of the gospel, we should abstain from sin and defilement, sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, and we should walk in holiness. Listen this morning, this is the Christian life. Holiness is the Christian life. Don't tell me you're a Christian and still live with the same behaviors and priorities as the culture around us. You're not. Don't say, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live like the rest of the world. That's not true about you. First John says that if, if, if you proclaim to love God, but you continue to walk in disobedience, that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you're really saved, if you've really professed Christ, if you really have faith, then you will walk in holiness because your father is holy because he's made you into a new creation. If you look like a lost person, talk like a lost person, and act like a lost person, you are a lost person. Our response to the gospel isn't to go back to the desires of our former ignorance. That makes no logical sense. Our response is to be holy because our father is holy. The next point is that we revere God. Verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time as living as strangers, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Now, I get that for some of you that this next illustration is not going to land for some of you. Uh, maybe it's because your dad was either not loving and absent or was de- not really demanding of respect. But I'm going to try to paint a picture for you to help you understand. Because growing up with Jimmy Ward as a father is a great example of what Peter's talking about. He was loving and I felt like I could go to him if I had anything going on, but at the same time, he was dad. We were not friends. We were not friends, that was not his role. He was the authoritarian in our household and everybody understood that. It was his way or no way and we understood that. And he was massive, is massive and very strong. And because of that, there was a reverence, right? I didn't talk to my dad like I talked to my friends right? Because I would have got punched in the mouth. I didn't go to my dad and, and, and say, hey, what's up, old man? Like, I didn't do that. Because dad was dad, and he was to be revered as dad, right? That was his role within our household. And absolutely, he loved us, and he was there for us, and he cared for us, and all of those things are true. But at the same time, there was this separation of I am the child, he is the father, he is to be revered as the father, 
And we got that, because if we didn't, we had to stutter for the next week. I was on guard of my speech and conduct when I was around him because I revered him for his position and his power. Peter says, if you appeal to the Father, do it with reverence. Listen, God is not on the same level as you. He is not your homeboy. He is not on your level. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful by it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. Listen to this. For our God is a consuming fire. Because of his position and his power, he should be revered. As we walk this earth as strangers and exiles, we live with reverence to God. We worship him for who he is and we submit to his authority. What does that reverence look like? It looks like walking in our redemption. That's what Peter says. He says, we've been redeemed from our empty way of life by the blood of the lamb. Salvation isn't just a get out of hell free card, right? Salvation isn't just about your eternal destination. It's not just about whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. That's not what salvation is, is about. That's a wonderful piece of it. But salvation is so much bigger than that. Redemption is about a change in purpose that God redeems you for his glory, for his purpose. God redeemed you. You're not meaningless. If you're a regenerated believer, you are redeemed. You have a purpose. Your purpose is living for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We, we revere God by living out our purpose of glorifying him. And listen, Everything in your life should be about glorifying him. A lot of people want to segregate their faith. Like, okay, I, this, is, this is this faith thing. This is that part of my life here. And I've got my marriage and I've got my career and I've got my children and I've got all these different little sections of my life. That's not how this works. If that's how this works in your life, then you have an idolatry problem. Because the way that this should work is that your faith is everything and all those little things are parts of it, right? So your marriage is for God's glory. Your parenting is for God's glory. Your career is for God's glory. Your education is for God's glory. Your leisure is for God's glory. Your money is for God's glory. Your time is for God's glory. Do not try to categorize your life because it's all for God's glory or none of it is. You can't segregate it that way. It's either all for his glory or none of it's for his glory. We revere God by living in the redemption that he gave us through the blood of Jesus. The next point is this, that we believe in God. Our appropriate response to salvation is that we believe in God. Verse 20 says he was foreknown before the foundations of the world but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Several years ago, probably like eight or nine years ago, um, I got to go to the Cotton Bowl, which was really cool. It was at AT&T Stadium. We had really good seats and uh, got to watch the game, got special parking passes, 
We felt like kings. It was awesome. And the only reason I got to do that is because dad works at Coke and he had tickets through his work. They have a box there. Coke has a box and they gave him tickets to it. And so I benefited from dad's work. He didn't get to go because he had something going on. So he gave me the tickets. So I benefited 100% solely because of his labor, because of, because of his work, because of his labor, I got a reward. Peter's saying that Jesus is God. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. He's always been, and it's through Jesus that we can even believe in God. You didn't believe in God on your own. It's not like you put together some pros and cons list, and you're like, all right, I think I'll follow God. That's got a lot of pros in that column. It's not how it worked. The Holy Spirit revealed to you the reality of your sin and your need for salvation and God's love and his mercy. The Holy Spirit did that in you. You didn't put together a pros and cons list. It's the grace of God that allows us to even believe in the grace of God. How crazy is that? Because of that opportunity to believe now, we can put our faith and hope in God. And Paul talks about this to the Corinthians as well in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, what's the point of eloquence? I can spend an hour trying to convince you of your need to give your life to Jesus, but it amounts to nothing without the transforming power of the Spirit. For you to believe, it has to be a work of God. For you to be changed by the gospel, it has to be a work of God in your life. And so the only way that you can believe is through God. And what's the result of that changing your heart, that changing your life? is that you put your faith and hope in him, that you continue to live in that faith, that you continue to trust him in your life. And what does that look like? It looks like obedience in your life. If you truly believe that God is who he says he is and you truly put your faith in him, then you're going to walk in obedience. You're gonna trust that his way is the best way. Our appropriate response to salvation is faith and hope in God because Jesus opened up a door for us to believe. And here's the last point that Peter makes. Our response should be a love for one another. Look at verse 22. It says, since you have been purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So Beck and I got married in 2005. We've been married uh, for several years now. And getting married, because I've been married, I do things differently now than I did before I got married, right? Now, if I wanna make a decision, I talk to my wife about those decisions, right? I spend time with her, I change, I have changed how I do things in life simply because of that relationship. 
These aren't things I feel like I have to do. They're just natural responses to that relationship. Peter's saying, because we've been born again, we love one another constantly. So because the relationship with God has changed, because now you're one of his children, now we love one another constantly. Since we've been purified by submitting to the truth of the gospel so that we can show brotherly love, we love one another constantly. And there's a couple of qualitative statements about what this love looks like that Peter gives us. First, he says, from a pure heart. He says that we love from a pure heart with sincerity. The love Peter's talking about isn't a fake love. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's real. That means that we're not just loving to pat ourselves on the back. Our love is an outflow of our new identity. How do we gauge if our love is sincere or not? By gauging what it costs us. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Jesus says, hey, look, you're my followers. You love like me, right? Follow after me. Love like I loved. How did Jesus love us? By giving up his life for us. He sacrificed all the things for us, right? He gave his life for us. And so if we're going to love like Jesus loved, that means that we sacrifice. So if we proclaim that we love people, it means nothing if it hasn't cost us anything. If you want to know if your love for others is real or not, calculate what it has cost you. Not only is it real and authentic, but he also says it's constant, right? It's from a pure heart, but it's also constant. Seems like lately with all the chaos that's been going on, that there has been a lot of divisions within the church as a whole. Right? If you follow the news, you see some stuff that's been going on in the, in the SBC. A lot of divisions, a lot of stuff that's going on. A lot of people dividing over ideological differences. Right? Conservative versus liberal, vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, masked versus non-masked, and relationships have become severed. That's not what this church thing is supposed to look like. We're not supposed to be dividing over ideological differences because in the end, those mean nothing, right? This means everything. Ideological stuff means nothing. And sometimes we flip those priorities and our ideologies become so much more important to us than the gospel. And we're willing to divide over it. And Peter's saying, no, no, you should love one another constantly, Constantly, regardless of what happens in the relationship, you should love one another constantly. There should be a constant and sincere love. That means that even if someone disagrees with your ideology, as long as they're a brother and sister in Christ, we choose love. That means that even if someone has hurt you, you choose love. Look what, John, what Jesus said in that text we just read. I give you a new command, love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus didn't say everyone's gonna know you're my disciple by your ideology. He said you're gonna, they're gonna know you by your love. We're gonna be known to other people by our love, right? They're gonna know that we follow Jesus by how we love each other. We've been born again by the living, enduring word of God and because of that, our love should be constant. It shouldn't be knocked off because we have stupid little ideological differences. We should be able to overcome that 
and have disagreements and yet still love one another in the end because we are of Christ. Because we follow after the enduring word of God, our relationships should be enduring because that's our foundation, not our ideology. Ideologies come and they go. They've come and gone for for centuries. But the word of God endures forever. So Peter says this is the gospel that was proclaimed to us. If you've been saved, if your faith is genuine and real, there is an appropriate response. How has your salvation and faith changed you? What has been your response? Think back to the moment in your life when you surrendered your life to Jesus. When you gave your life to Christ, think back to that moment. And then ask yourself, is anything different? Has anything changed about you? Has the gospel changed you as as a person? Are you, as Paul says, a new creation? Remember, Peter is writing to prepare his readers for the persecution that is coming. He's reminding them that the gospel should be producing something in their life, and he's encouraging them to stand firm in it. And I told you guys week one that I feel like we're moving in the direction of a very much post-Christian society, which will inevitably include, include persecution, that's, that's the direction that we're headed. And if that's the case, are you ready for that persecution? Are you ready to stand firm in the gospel that you proclaim to believe? Now when it's easy to come to church and to sit in this room in an air-conditioner room with cushiony seats, it's easy to stand firm now. Will it be easy for you to stand firm when they start locking the doors They start persecuting us for proclaiming Christ. Are you going to be able to stand? The only way you're going to be able to stand is if your salvation is real, your faith is real, and if that's true about you, then there are going to be some of these appropriate responses in your life. Is your mind ready? Is your mind ready? With all this stuff that's going on, how anxious have you been? Where's your heart been? Where's your mind been? If it's been incredibly anxious and fearful, your mind's probably not ready. Maybe it's time for you to really start redirecting your focus and your heart onto the gospel, off of the circumstances of life and onto the gospel. Remember where your hope is. Remember who your God is. Remember what the ultimate problem is, that it's sin. Remember who your enemy is, that it's Satan. And remember what your purpose is, that it's proclaiming the word of God to the world around us. Keep your focus on that. Stop getting worried about all this other stuff that's going on around us and focus on that. That's all that matters. Are you walking in holiness? You're a child of the king. You're not of this world. You should be holy because he is holy. You should be set apart and living a different life than the other people around us. Do you revere God by living out your purpose? We are not on the same level as God and he has given us instruction to live our lives for his glory. 
Do you revere him enough to follow in obedience to that? Do you trust God in all things? Yes, things are crazy, but do you trust that God is still in control? And finally, do you love others? And it's important that we really put ourselves to the test and not just say, oh yeah, of course I love people. Because if you've not sacrificed anything for anybody, you don't love anybody. We get that with people that we actually love, right? When your spouse and your kids, you lay things down for them. What about the people that we don't really like? The people that are hard to love or the people that we're indifferent towards? That shouldn't be who we are as a people, as Christians, as people who proclaim Christ. Our response to the gospel should be a love, a sacrificial, enduring love for others. And so the answer to those questions is no. There's two possibilities. One, you're a Christian, but you're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know deep in your heart that you've professed Christ, the gospel, the, the Holy Spirit's come and lived inside of you, has changed you and made you into a new creation. You've seen evidence of that, and just for whatever reason at this point, you've kind of ventured off that path. And this may be a wake-up call for you. Or the other possibility is that you don't truly know him. Maybe you said a prayer at some church event at some point in your life. Maybe you're religious, but you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ and there's no fruit, there's no evidence of that in your life. If that's true about you, then my hope and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, quickening your heart, revealing to you who he is, and that in this moment this morning, you'll choose to surrender your life to him. There is no salvation without surrender. Salvation isn't just about head knowledge. Faith is not just about head knowledge and saying, yes, I believe in God. Scripture says that even the demons believe that and they shudder at his name. Salvation is found in faith and surrendering to God and making him the Lord of your life. And so if you've never done that this morning, here in a moment, we're going to stand. The band's going to sing. There are going to be a couple of people that are standing down front who would love an opportunity to talk to you about what it truly means to give your life to Christ. And this morning, if you're a Christian and you know deep in your heart that you're failing in some of these areas, that you're, you've not responded to your salvation with some of these areas, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit's convicting you and that you'll take this opportunity this morning to repent and get right. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? As the band comes and plays and prepares, we're going to have a moment and a time of invitation. This is a time for you to respond however God is leading you to respond. My prayer is that through the word of God this morning, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and in some way, shape, or form is convicting you of sin and leading you towards a deeper communion with God, a deeper understanding of God. And so, for, again, if, if you realize that you've never truly put your hope and faith in Christ, you've never surrendered your life to him, or you're, maybe you're unsure, as the band sings in a moment, come grab these people by the hand that are going to be standing down front and just have a conversation with them about it. They would love to have that conversation. And this morning, if you're a believer, 
and you've, you know without a shadow of doubt that you've surrendered your life to Jesus and there's fruit of that in your life, but for whatever reason, some of these areas, you just haven't really been walking in the spirit. My prayer is that you repent of that this morning, that God will speak to you and he'll change your heart. Father God, we, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our salvation. God, I pray that during these times of uncertainty that, that we won't forget who we are. We won't forget who you are. We won't forget that our real enemy is Satan. Our real problem is sin. And that our purpose is to glorify you in all things. I pray, God, that circumstances of life would not knock us off, that we will ready our minds, be ready for the battle that is raging around us. God, we pray that you would be speaking to hearts this morning, that you would be convicting us of these areas where maybe we haven't responded the way that your word says we should respond to this gospel. Maybe we're not walking in holiness. Maybe we're not walking with the right kind of mindset. God, I pray that you would change us. Your spirit would continue to sanctify us in truth. God, we pray if there's anyone here that has never truly surrendered their life to you, they've not made you the Lord of their life, God, I pray that in this moment your spirit is speaking to their heart and that they would, that they would surrender. That they would continue to walk in rebellion, continue to make excuses, continue to try to justify their life, but they would they would choose to surrender to you and find life, find, find abundant life in knowing you. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified during this time. And should we pray? Amen. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.